Welcome back to Grace Baptist Church. We're so glad to have you here with us once again. And I just want to begin as we do each time, just thanking you for tuning in and hope and trust that our ministry is continuing to be a help to you. And uh, we are praying for all of you. I know that we are still in the midst of an unusual time in our in our country, and we're just praying for each and every one of you. And I uh, hope that tonight will be a will be a help to you as we uh, study Scripture together with you today. Tonight we're going to be looking at a uh, particular character in Scripture, and we're going to be looking at a, a kind of a biblical story that many of you may be familiar with. And the reason I wanted to take some time and study this person tonight is because I, I do believe that in our culture, there's a lot of different ideas about heaven, how you get to heaven, how you can have a relationship with God. And very often we find people, at least I come into contact with people, and you probably do as well, that claim to be religious and, and claim to have a particular belief system, and they are putting their faith in that system of religion. And very often that system of religion teaches things like if your good works outweigh your bad works, then uh, you will work your way into heaven. You will be able to accomplish salvation through what you do. And uh, some of the other ideas, in fact, I was uh, listening to a video recently about another Eastern religion that doesn't really teach in any kind of God. There is no, in a sense, heaven. You just kind of do good things, and then in a next life, you'll come back um, a little bit better than if you were bad in this life, and the idea of reincarnation that you see in Buddhism, Hinduism, and other places like that. So we have these common religious ideas. But I would suggest that the most common one is that the idea of your good works are enough to earn your way to heaven. Well, in John chapter 3, we are going to find that religion is not sufficient for reaching heaven. In fact, philosophy and religion can uh, complicate matters in some ways because people who are philosophical or they are religious begin to believe the idea that they are okay and that they will one day be in God's presence. So with all that being said, I want to introduce you tonight to a man by the name of Nicodemus. We find him again in John chapter 3. And as we study through this text, we're going to go a verse or two at a time. We're going to go from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15. And as we do this, I'm going to take, again, just kind of some small snippets, explain a little bit about the text, and then we'll tie it all together at the end. So in John chapter 3, in the very first verse, we are introduced again to this man named Nicodemus. So let's take a look at him and find out a little bit more about this man. It says in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, we learn two very important aspects or truths about this man, Nicodemus, okay? And generally, we would say it this way before we get into the two particulars of Nicodemus. We would learn from this verse that he was a man of influence. He was certainly a man who would have been very conservative in his beliefs. He was uh, caught up in the in the day in which they would have philosophical debates, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. But this was a man who is, as we'll learn, seeking out truth. But before we get to that, look at the two specific things or truths that we are told about Nicodemus in this first verse. First of all, we learn that he is a Pharisee. 
Now, you may or may not be familiar with this group of people, and I won't go into a lengthy description of them, but they were a part of Judaism, of Jewish, uh, the Jewish ideas of Judaism, of their religion. He would have been of a very strict, very conservative group of people. Okay, the Pharisees were known as legalists. In fact, oftentimes they would take the Mosaic law, they would take the Old Testament law, and they would add to the laws that God had given. Let me give you a quick example of that. God had said in the Old Testament that they were to keep the Sabbath. Well, through the traditions of the Pharisees, they added extra biblical ideas of what it meant to obey the Sabbath. And over time, they began to judge those around them, not by whether or not they were keeping the Sabbath per se, but whether or not they were keeping these very strict religious ideas of what the Sabbath was all about. So we learn from this text that uh, Nicodemus was part of this very orthodox, very conservative group of people. And what we're going to find is that his conservatism his very strict religious ideas, Jesus is going to challenge that and tell him it's not sufficient for salvation. But we learn a second fact about about, uh, Nicodemus. Not only was he a Pharisee in verse 1, we find out he was also a ruler of the Jews, that he was a part of a group of people called the Sanhedrin. This was a kind of leadership council of the Jewish people. It doesn't exactly parallel, but we could think about it in a sense this way, that the Supreme Court in the United States is kind of a ruling body within our political system. They don't set policies, but they are given the responsibility to interpret the laws of the land and apply them to the cases that come across their desk. Well, the Sanhedrin would have been, in a sense, a very similar group, a very select group that would have been very influential, and they would have been settling matters of theology, matters of debate that was taking place in their their course of time. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, very religious, a member of the Sanhedrin, very influential. So on paper, Nicodemus has a lot going for him. Let's look at verse 2 and find out a little bit more. This man came to Jesus by night. And says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, if you know about the life of Christ even even a little bit, you know that very often in the course of Jesus's ministry, he had repeated conflict with the Pharisees. They were consistently trying to trap him, trip him up, uh, trying to trick him into saying something that would go against their laws. The Pharisees and Jesus did not have a very warm and fuzzy relationship. In fact, some of the harshest, strongest words that Jesus had for anyone was directed at the Pharisees. What is interesting here is that we have this man, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who comes to Jesus with great with a great amount of courtesy. He comes to Jesus, in a sense, with an open mind. He is kind. He's not trying to trick Jesus or to uh, trip him up. He shows no sign of hostility toward Christ. 
And so he even references Jesus as rabbi. This would have been a term of respect. In fact, Nicodemus, by using this word, is submitting himself to the instruction of Jesus. And so he comes and he wants to learn from Christ and find out what his teachings are. Now, there's been much discussion about the fact that uh, Nicodemus came to talk with Jesus by night. Now, we don't want to read into that and, and think that just because Nicodemus came to Jesus by night that he was timid necessarily. It is possible, however, that he did come to kind of uh, come privately with Jesus, and so he did it when it was dark where maybe his conversation couldn't be observed. As I was thinking about this text, actually, in a sense, Nicodemus had a lot to lose. And so there may have been a, a moment of caution in his mind when he came to Christ. He wanted to make sure that maybe the conversation wasn't overheard. Certainly as a member of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee, if this was to creep out, he could have much to lose. So there's a possibility here that, that he was trying to be clandestine and coming to Jesus, but I wouldn't read that as timidity. Now, some of the others who have made suggestions regarding why Nicodemus came by night also offer some interesting insight. It was not uncommon for the Sanhedrin, those of the philosophical ideology that were, that were spending their time in theological debates, it was not uncommon for them to have these conversations late into the night. So just by the very fact of the nature of this, it could very well be that they were, that they were just discussing this uh, late into the evening as they did often before giving indication that Nicodemus was a devoted student. He wanted to learn. He wasn't uh, worried about necessarily being caught as much as he was just practicing their time of the day. It may also be that Jesus was approached by Nicodemus at night because during the day Jesus was bombarded with people. And it may just be that Nicodemus finally had an opportunity to speak to Jesus privately. I don't exactly know why Nicodemus came at night. I would just end the conversation here and say he wasn't a timid man. It wasn't because he was afraid. It may be he wanted to have this privately, or it may be that he was simply getting access to Jesus at a time that was convenient for him. And again, we don't exactly know why he came at night. I just wouldn't be too quick to uh, lay a heavy accusation on Nicodemus because he came by night. Now, he also makes another interesting comment in verse 2. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Look, teacher, we know you're from God, because clearly no one who doesn't come from God is able to do these signs. In the book of John, you see the word the Greek word, simeon. It's translated as sign in Greek, or excuse me, in English. And when it comes in our New Testament, this word sign is talking about the miracles, the things that Jesus did to point to his deity. So it appears that Nicodemus had some very direct observations that he had made about the ministry of Christ, and he wants to know, teacher, teach us more about who you are and what does this all mean? Now in verse three, Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't actually ask. Nicodemus is coming wanting to know that what these signs mean and a little more information about who Jesus is. 
But notice in verse 3 what Jesus does. He answers him and he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus kind of cuts through the philosophy, cuts through the pharisaical debating and the Sanhedrin ideology, and he kind of cuts to the chase, and he says, look, Nicodemus, your religion in and of itself is not enough to save you from your sin. Jesus says you have to be born again. This phrase, born again, in in the original language, actually means born from above. In other words, Nicodemus, you have to be born from above. You have to experience a new birth at the hand of your creator in order to experience a relationship with God. Jesus gets to Nicodemus's real issue. The real issue for Nicodemus is he is a sinner, a man with a sinful heart, a person who needs to understand redemption. And so he needed to have this Uh, new birth or this birth from heaven, this heavenly rebirth. Nicodemus need to experience that. And Jesus says at the end of verse three, no one can see the kingdom of God apart from this. Apart from a rebirth, you cannot experience God's kingdom. You can't become a citizen of God's kingdom. Well, why why would a man like Nicodemus need to hear that? Well, For one, the religious Jews believed that their strict adherence to their laws and their rules would be enough to earn their way to heaven. And so Jesus is, is in a sense, challenging this view. Nicodemus, you cannot be religious enough to get to heaven. You cannot do enough good things, keep strict rules, and do all of these religious things and get into heaven. You have to be born from above in order to experience the kingdom of God. Now, not only would Nicodemus need to be challenged on his good works, understanding also that the Jews, particularly those of the Pharisees, would have been very proud of the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Paul touches on this in the book of Philippians and in other places, Romans, for instance, that being a physical descendant of Abraham was not enough to get you into heaven. It wasn't family heritage. It's not your good works. It's not your family heritage. Neither of these are sufficient to earn God's kingdom. And so Jesus is challenging this idea that Nicodemus would hold to and saying your religion's not enough and your family's not enough. Nicodemus doesn't quite get this. And he's not being difficult. He's not kind of being cantankerous or, or, or irritable with Jesus. He's just simply following up with another question. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be reborn or be born again? How is that possible? Nicodemus here is understanding that Jesus is talking about another physical birth. But in verse 3 that we just read, Jesus is talking only about one birth, and he's not talking about a physical birth. He's not referencing being born to your physical mother. He is talking about a spiritual rebirth. So Nicodemus 
doesn't quite understand this imagery that Jesus is using. And he says, I can't go back into my mother's womb and experience the birthing process all over again. Well, Jesus is going to clarify this a little bit more again in verse 5. Notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't demean Nicodemus for not understanding. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't attack him. He just comes at it from a different angle and tries to explain it a little bit more particularly. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about verse number 5 and exactly what this is talking about. Before we look at the look at the the text here in just a moment, I want you to keep this in mind. Verse 3 and verse 5 are parallel to each other. In other words, the construction of them in the original language, how the sentences play out, how they're developed, they are parallel. They're equal, okay? In verse 3, I mentioned that Jesus is talking about one birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. In verse 5, he is also talking about one birth, not two. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. Now, here's how this text has been understood. I've heard this preached for years, and, and I know many folks hold this position and I would respectfully uh, offer a, a understanding that I think is more accurate with the original language. Some have argued that the term water here is a reference to physical birth, that Jesus is talking about saying something like this. You have been physically born. There's evidence of that. You're here. And so now you have to also experience the second birth or the spiritual birth. So the argument goes this way, that when Jesus says that you have to be born of water, he's talking about your physical birth. And when he is talking about being born of the spirit, he's talking about a spiritual birth, that the water here is a reference to the amniotic fluid and a reference to physical birth. Again, I would respectfully offer a a, I think, a more accurate understanding of this based on the construction of the original language. This is not referencing amniotic fluid. It's not referencing physical birth. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Well, first of all, there is no ancient resources anywhere that indicate this word, this picture was used to reference amniotic fluid or physical birth. Now, I wouldn't put a all my all my eggs in that basket. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, keep my argument based on just that, but it's something to at least thinking about. Think about Jesus is speaking about a spiritual birth with water and a physical cleansing that comes from the Holy Spirit. So the second reason I would offer that the reason I understand this to be talking about one birth is it builds off Ezekiel thirty six. Verses 24 through 27. Let me read those for you. Ezekiel says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, I want you to also, if you have a Bible with you close by, if you want to turn a couple of pages to John chapter 7, I want to also have you look at these verses because we want to, as we can, interpret Scripture based on other Scripture. In John 7, verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now listen to this. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it seems, again, that Jesus, when he uses the word water, is he's talking about the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. We hold that position, number one, ancient texts don't indicate that this word was used to refer to physical birth. Number two, the Old Testament in Ezekiel and John 7 give us scriptural evidence that this picture was used to refer to the Spirit. But let me give you a third argument that settles it in my mind, and I don't want to bog down into the original language much, but the Greek word here is the word chi. It's the word and often in, in English. So when we see in verse 5, I'm reading from ESV, born of the water and of the spirit, the translators, and I don't, I don't know of all of them, but I think the vast majority of them translate as and. But when you look at this word, it can also be used and translated this way. It is be born of water, that is the spirit. So the picture is, seems to be that Jesus is using water to illustrate spiritual cleansing at the hand of the Holy Spirit, and he uses both water and spirit to make sure that we understand the point is salvation, this one birth, this spiritual being born from above, is a work of the Holy Spirit of God that cleanses us from our unrighteousness. So in verse 3, Jesus is talking about one birth, a spiritual birth. In verse 5, he's talking about one birth, the same spiritual birth, trying to get Nicodemus to understand he could not work his way into salvation. It was a, a miraculous event. Being born from above is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let's follow on in the text. We'll pick up speed a little bit here in the next next few verses notice verse 6 he says that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit do not marvel that i say unto you you must be born again nicodemus you have to experience this spiritual rebirth the wind blows where it wishes and your heart it's sound but you do not know where it comes or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice again and again and again, Jesus is drawing 
our attention and Nicodemus's attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. He even gives us this physical um, picture of the wind. We don't know the source of the wind. We can't see the wind. We can't capture the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. In fact, in Greek, the word spirit and wind come from the same Greek word. And so he says, look, the work of the spirit, you can see evidence of that in a life of a believer. It's given evidence as the fruit of the spirit. We see the evidence of the spirit working. We can't see him, can't touch him, can't feel him in that sense, but we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit just like we see the effects of the wind. The origin of the wind is unknown. The working of the spirit, we can't see it, we can't control it, but we can see the effects of the wind and this is the Holy Spirit's power in redemption, saving those from their sin who believe on Christ and repent of their sin. I want to read you a quote. It actually comes from a guy by the name of D.A. Carson. And Carson was talking about this verse. He's talking about Nicodemus, talking about this section. Listen to what he said. He said, if Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for any who seeks salvation along such lines. What Carson is saying is, when you look at the life of Nicodemus, if anyone could have earned his way to heaven, it's Nicodemus. He's religious, he's moral, he's courteous, he's he's from the right family line, he's gifted, he's smart, and yet Jesus says, if you are not born from above, you cannot experience the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's pause here for a moment before we finish the text and just think of this from two different angles. First, for those of us that are believers in Christ, this is a great model for us to share Christ with others. Again, Nicodemus, when he comes to Christ, Jesus doesn't attack him, berate him, humiliate him, embarrass him, shame him. Jesus simply tells him the truth. You must be born from above. And when Nicodemus doesn't answer, he clarifies it. He even gives him a picture of what that looks like. And so this is a wonderful model for us as believers to share the good news of Christ with others and to make sure that we share the gospel with love and compassion and patience. But the second application of this would be If you are maybe watching us right now and you're not sure about your salvation, maybe you find yourself kind of resonating with Nicodemus a little bit and you think your religion is enough or your family heritage is enough or your intellect is enough or your position in life is enough, your influence is adequate to get you to heaven. May Nicodemus serve as an example that apart from the Holy Spirit of God working in your heart to save you from your sin, you will never experience the kingdom of God. It is accomplished through faith in Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to change you and to save you from your sin and make you a citizen of God's kingdom. You can't do that on your own. Nicodemus could not do that. I couldn't do that. And you're not able to do that either. Now, as we finish up tonight, I want you to notice what Jesus does next. 
he gives Nicodemus the information about the Spirit, and then he says in verse 9, Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Again, Nicodemus still doesn't quite grasp or follow exactly what Jesus is teaching him. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus says to Nicodemus something very intriguing. In fact, we've already read Ezekiel 36, and I won't reread that verse to you. But basically, Jesus says to him, there is already in the Old Testament enough information for you to understand what I'm talking about. This shouldn't be a mystery to you, Nicodemus. And by the way, Nicodemus would have had, particularly the writings of Moses, the the Pentateuch, he would have had these, and we'll talk about the Pentateuch in a moment, he would have had these verses of Scripture memorized. He would know them by heart. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You're a Pharisee. You are a person who is versed in what we call the Old Testament. That was their Bible. Nicodemus, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Ezekiel and other places, I've predicted. God has predicted. My Father has predicted my coming. This isn't new. Notice Jesus continues on, and he says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say unto you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus, you've seen what I've done. You've heard the testimony of what I've done. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus referencing himself. I descended from heaven. You're right, Nicodemus. I am from God. I am God's only son, his unique son. I am God in the flesh. I am the son of man. Term from the book of Daniel, by the way. And Moses, as Moses was lifted up, excuse me, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Life And once again, Jesus here is referencing an Old Testament account found in the book of Numbers when the people of Israel were once again complaining against God and being bitter and resentful against God, that God sent serpents, snakes, that were coming in and biting the people and the people were dying from these bites. And Moses cries out to God and, and, and begs God for mercy. And, and Moses was told to take a bronze snake. And every time he would lift it up and the people of God would look to this serpent, that God would heal those and he would deliver them from the serpents that were biting them. Once again, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with Numbers 21. He would have been very familiar with the text where it says from God to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Nicodemus would have known this verse. Recently, a couple of my children were at a friend's house and I wasn't there. I was, I was home. My wife was there and a couple of other moms were at this, at this house and, and some kids were hanging out together, whatever. My wife texts me and she says, 
hey, the kids just caught a, um, a copperhead. What should we do with it? And my initial reaction was very simple. Uh, we should kill that snake. We shouldn't be playing with that snake. We shouldn't be certainly not touching this snake. And the next day I saw a picture of this snake and it was about a nine inch long copperhead that my kids along with this parent under the direction of one of the parents captured the snake because it was after this lady's dog. And so when we think about snakes in our day, if you get bit, your life is certainly in, in danger depending on what kind of snake it is, but we have antidotes for that. We can go to the hospital for that. In Numbers chapter 21, once they were bit by these serpents, they had no hope. They had no chance of being delivered. So notice how Numbers chapter 21 plays out. The Israelites were guilty of disobedience. They were complaining against God. They were grumbling against God. They had an unthankful, sinful spirit against God. And so therefore, the Israelites were facing God's righteous and holy judgment because of their sin. God was holding them accountable, just like God holds us accountable for our sin. When we sin against God, when we sin against him in our actions or even in our attitudes, we know that God will hold us accountable as he did the people of Israel in Numbers. But here is what I want to leave you, leave you with tonight. In this imagery, Jesus is talking about his death on a cross. In fact, in John chapter 12, we have this picture of Jesus being lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion, that he would die on a cross, be buried, and rise again three days later. What Jesus wants us to understand is that we are guilty of sin, just like the Israelites, Number two, God will hold us accountable for our sin, just like he did the Israelites. But thirdly, just like the Israelites, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. The poison from the snakes was deadly. They had no antidote. The only antidote was to look to the serpent that Moses would raise as a symbol of the coming Christ and by faith look to this bronze serpent for deliverance. They could not save themselves, just like you can't save yourself from your sin. We are not able to rescue ourselves. And lastly, it was not enough that they knew the snakes were there. They had to, by faith, respond. It's not enough to know in your mind that Jesus died on a cross. It's not enough to just know that in your head. It's not enough that we just believe this in a religious sense. It's not enough to just wear a crucifix around my neck or to have it hanging on my wall in my house. It, it goes beyond the imagery. It goes to faith. When I look to the cross of Calvary, am I submitting myself to the risen Christ? Am I believing by faith that God and God alone can save me from my sin. You see, the crucifixion of Christ was the paying, he was paying the penalty for our sin. And faith in Christ is essential to salvation. 
Religion cannot earn salvation. It can't buy you into heaven. Moralism can't buy you into heaven. Even conservatism can't get you into heaven. The only way into heaven is through faith in Christ. And so if you're watching tonight and you are a believer, I rejoice with you and I'm thankful that you have a personal relationship with Christ. And I would challenge you to take these truths that you have been reminded of this evening and follow this model that Christ has given to us of showing Nicodemus what it means to be born from above. And then finally this evening, if you're watching and you're not sure about your salvation, I pray that you would seek out help and understanding more about salvation. If you want to contact us here at Grace Baptist Church at gracenc.org, we would be glad to share the gospel with you. You can also find the gospel on our website. But the Bible is clear. We cannot save ourselves that the only ones who will experience redemption and inherit God's kingdom are those who put faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us once again. We are so appreciative of the opportunity to uh, minister to you through this format. We pray and trust that this uh, message was a help to you, a challenge to you. And uh, we just pray that this would be, um, if you're not a believer, this would be a time for you to put your faith in Christ. If you are a Christian, may you tonight leave rejoicing in your redemption. Let me pray with you and uh, we'll finish our session tonight. Father, thank you for this time around your word. Use it for your glory in each and every one of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.